0: everyone thanks for coming tonight it's a sweet and homey time you know the holidays and a lot of us have been a bit buffeted by our social obligations and just the general buzz in the culture and it can be nice to come to a place like common ground and uh, or just do our practice at home there's something amazing about the mind the heart it's essential capacity to be released to be open to be loving even in the chaos of our lives and a lot of times because we're so critical You know just by nature just by training we tend to notice when our mind gets caught gets upset is reactive wants things to be other than they are but we don't tend to notice highlight the moments when the mind the heart is like uh, just okay not confused by the chaos not confused by the messes And you know, each of us, depending on how our, we're conditioned, you know, certain types of events or experiences are more challenging. Like, some people actually, it's relatively easy to, to notice this capacity of the mind to be open and space-like, not spaced out-like, but uh, empty of problems, space in that sense, during more crisis moments. We feel inspired to practice, so to speak. And then in the more ordinary, boring moments, those people's minds tend to be more reactive. Other people, they can manifest a sense of freedom or spaciousness in the more boring, ordinary moments, but tend to be more reactive when it's a crisis. So you can just reflect for yourselves, like, where where is it easier for your mind, heart, to be relatively speaking at least unconfused, not confused by things that are coming and going. The Buddha said, Luminous is consciousness, brightly shining is its nature, but it becomes clouded by the attachments that visit it. And uh, Jack Kornfield in the third chapter, so we're moving on now to the third chapter in Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart. That i've been mentioning the last month or so now and in the third chapter each chapter has a different principle of buddhist psychology so the basic principles coming out of the teachings of the buddha and this third principle is when we shift our attention from experience to the spacious consciousness that knows wisdom arises so again when we shift attention from experience to the spacious consciousness that knows wisdom arises and this play between the mind that knows fixing on experience on the particular objects like the pain in the knee or the feeling of restlessness or the worry about the future or thoughts regrets about the past often our mind maybe most of the time our mind's tendency is to fixate on different experiences and we don't that possibility of shifting the attention from the experience to the spacious consciousness that knows the mind that knows this is really what we mean by buddha i mean sometimes we mean the man that lived 2500 years ago but More specifically, in terms of psychology, Buddha is that mind that knows. What is awareness apart from the object that's being known? Some of you know Guy Armstrong. He's one of the senior teachers at Spirit Rock Meditation Society, or Meditation Center, I guess it is. Also teaches at IMS in Massachusetts and a wonderful teacher. And he uses a simple image that I like quite a bit. I'm going to use it slightly differently than I've heard him use it. But he has this uh, image where you're in deep space. There's a big star behind you. And you just happen to be looking out into a space, deep space, where there aren't any nearby stars or galaxies reflecting any light back. So what do you see? Well, you just see darkness. But yet, not so far back, behind you, there's a big star. Now, of course, if somebody behind you threw out a boomerang, which you can't do in space, probably, but you know, as soon as it started to circle in front of you, you would immediately see it because it would reflect the starlight from behind you, right? So you get the idea. Now, you know, in our from our scientific models, we'd say, well, there are photons. Shooting through that empty space, you know, just waiting to hit an object and reflect back to our retina or something like that. But this, you can use this for, uh, to open up to this space like nature of the mind, or awareness without an object. It's like there's a potential when you're looking out in deep space, there's the potential to see anything if there were anything to reflect the light. As soon as there's something to reflect the light, it's seen. And there's no effort, you know, that it's like the mind, the potential of the mind to know. And this is where you know practice in a large part is a discovering, a waking up to what's pervasive and subtle and, uh, um, not not distinct as an object you know this this mind this empty luminous brightly shining mind as the Buddha t- calls it and it's like a fish in water the fish doesn't know water you know in a very real sense human beings or maybe all beings were living breathing swimming in mind. But we don't notice it because we've been trained to fixate, identify with the particular objects of the moment, including our thoughts. Thoughts are just objects of the moment, sounds, smells, tastes, touches. How many times does it seem relevant, the space between a thought and the mind? We notice thoughts sometimes, if we're lucky. But how many times do you notice the space between thoughts? You know, We don't notice the space between the thoughts. Well, what is that mind? So it gets confusing, because we use the word mind a lot, or heart a lot. And uh, maybe it's better if we said mind and activity of the mind, heart or activity of the heart, to distinguish the two ways we use mind. Like, there's the thinking mind. That's the activity. The mind that knows sound, the mind that knows sensation. But then there's the mind that, in a sense, exists before and after that particular object is known. In this chapter, Jack Hornfield talks about consciousness. He divides it up in two ways. You know, He talks about it as two dimensions of consciousness. And he likens it to the recent uh, discoveries, I guess, in physics, where they noticed that light can be understood both as a particle, like a photon, and also as a wave. And the uh, idea is that—I don't understand this well, but this is basically true for when we break it down. All phenomena manifest as a particle or a wave, and it just depends on how you look. If you look a particular way light appears as a wave and if you look another way study light in a different way it arises as a a particle and consciousness has a similar nature like uh, if somebody just shouted right now in a way consciousness the mind that knows the mind that pays attention it would know that sound it would meet the sound this it's like uh unbounded. We've the last four weeks or so we've talked about love, first just noticing the basic goodness of the heart arising so simply as the experience of I care about this life. And really starting to unpack that simple, natural experience, right? Everybody knows this experience probably. I care about this life. And it's so ordinary, we don't think much about it. But if we unpack it a little bit, if we look at that, we see it's an essential goodness. And as we look at it more and more, it has an expansive quality. Like, if I really tune in to caring about this life, that truth, not like I'm concocting the fact that I care about my life. But I'm actually noticing that I care. It, it can't be stopped. If I really look at it carefully, patiently, in a simple way, there, the boundaries of that caring, they're, they get loose or ephemeral. And I just start to care. It's not so much about this life, or about your life, or about the squirrels, or about snow. So love, when we look at it and our ideas of, about love don't mess it up, we're just actually interested in the experience of love or compassion or kindness or whatever you want to call it, it has the same, it will manifest the same expansive quality where it doesn't actually have a location like we imagine, Where well, I love Stan. I know Stan. I love him he's a great guy and then that love is bounded right it's bound up with this idea of me who loves Stan and who Stan is and who I am who loves Stan and and it's conditional it's bound but it stays bound only as long as my mind is fixed is dependent on the story I love Stan that when my mind shifts its attention from the story about I like Stan I love Stan To the love itself, then it starts to manifest this this inclusive or non-fixed quality, just like consciousness. So again, this as a principle, you know, just to repeat myself, when we shift attention from experience to the spacious consciousness that knows, wisdom arises. Or another way of saying that, maybe more generalizing that statement some, when we shift our consciousness from the specific specific object, as soon as we have a specific object, we can have an opinion about it. We can either like it or not like it. Like even in this room right now, using our visual experience, right? We're, I think we can all see. So as we open our eyes, looking around or not, does it matter? And we have this visual experience. Now, our visual, you know, that visual sensitivity, it can fixate on a particular person or a particular shawl or sweater or sock. And as soon as it fixates, then very quickly we start having opinions. We compare it to like socks that we have, socks that we like. But it's also possible to um, not be confused by any of the particular visual experiences, sort of like a soft gaze. And so instead of the particular, we're, we're interested. The first step is really just to be interested in the sensitivity, the natural sensitivity to visual experience. And and then immediately we start to notice how effortless that is. Like, try to shut that off. I mean, without shutting your eyes. And even if you shut your eyes, you still see. You're just seeing darkness. Maybe lights. But when we're not fixed on a particular visual item, we start to have a sense of the space of the mind. Just the same way that when we stop fixing on this person I like, this person I care about. And notice just the caring, just the love, just the kindness. It has an expansive quality, inclusive quality. Like another way of working with this statement, this third principle of Buddhist psychology from Jack Hornfield: when we shift attention from experience to the spacious consciousness that knows wisdom arises, we could do the opposite. When we shift attention from spacious consciousness that knows to the specific um, experience, ignorance arises. And it says something about what the Buddha means by wisdom and ignorance. It's not a judgment so much. It's just a statement that the more narrow and tight one's perspective is, the more ignorant one is. the less functional the mind is. And the more expansive, the more inclusive, the broader, deeper one's understanding is, then the more functional, more skillful the mind is. And we've all seen this in our lives. Think about how many times whether it was the first time you fell in love or the first time you went to some foreign land or the first time you experienced real loss or danger, like your life was threatened. Think about how many times in our lives our particular worldview, our particular perspective got cracked open. And we were a different person after that. So life... If we let it, you know, will arise for us to gently or sometimes, unfortunately, not so gently crack open our view. And spiritual practice, at least this path taught by the Buddha, is just in a more conscious, systematic way, we're opening up, we're inviting that breaking apart of one's view. I mentioned last week for those who weren't here, this basic principle in um, chemistry when water gets colder, at some point you know generally as things get colder they get denser. but at some point as the I guess the crystals begin to form, water actually expands as its' turning to ice, right That's why ice floats on water. And this basic chemical process, Is what breaks apart mountains you know you get a little water in the crevice of a rock and then it gets cold below freezing the water expands turns to ice that force of expansion can't be stopped it's strong enough of course to break apart rock you get your frost heaves pushing up the roads and there's something uh, more powerful I guess we could say than anything else in terms of this um, breaking apart, opening up, expansion of the mind, because the mind is essentially boundless, measureless. Love, compassion is essentially boundless, uh, limitless. But for all kinds of reasons that probably we could never understand fully we have gotten addicted to being limited (laughs) and we are afraid of that unbounded limitless heart or mind mostly because it's unfamiliar what's familiar is our neurotic fears and needs and desires right we feel at home oh i really want to see that movie it's such a homey feeling you know i really want When I think about my future and what I want, it's such a comfortable feeling when I worry about things. It's comfortable because my mind has done it so many times before. something very similar to it so many times before. We're comfortable with what's known, and we're uncomfortable, frightened by what's unknown. And boundless, limitlessness, it's unknown. Groundlessness is unknown, and it's scary because of that. So, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll become good students of consciousness, both consciousness that arises to meet a particular object, you know, the simple knowing of a breath, the knowing of a sound, the knowing of a thought, the knowing of sensation. But we also want to begin to intuit. It's a different kind of knowing. So that's why we have a word like intuition or insight, but to begin to intuit this space, this empty, luminous, shining space of the mind, as the Buddha describes it. Luminous is consciousness. Brightly shining is its nature. But it becomes clouded by the attachments that visit it. Or another place in the discourses of the Buddha, he talked about... um, unrestricted consciousness consciousness that isn't restricted by through the process of attachment or identification as we get interested in the just the mind itself in a way we're taking attention it's normally looking out towards sensation and thought and sight and sound And we're turning that attention back toward the nature of the mind itself one of the big obstacles is we have a lot of unquestioned beliefs about the mind most of us probably were raised you know some of us were raised as Catholics and some as Jews and some as Protestants and some as who knows what else but Muslims but a lot of us were also, and maybe even more so raised as you know scientific materialists. And uh, this is uh, so we are so devoted to this particular belief system that we don't even question it. We're not even aware of. It. It's like if we grew up in you know parts of Europe three, four hundred years ago, It wouldn't occur to us that we're Catholic, you know? Everybody was Catholic, right? That's just how it was, maybe. I mean, certain parts, for sure. Or, you know, a Buddhist country back a while back, you know? Everybody was Buddhist. There was no other thing to be. Well, a lot of us are like that with sort of a materialist view of science where we just have this particular idea of the mind. And not just the mind, but this reality is simply something that has arisen out of biology. This life is just an expression of biology. And I'm not saying that that view is wrong or isn't skillful in some ways or useful in some ways. But I think what's important is to remember it's a view. It's a belief system. And that there are many different belief systems we can have. And so I want to just throw out a few so that we can have a, just a, a more playful, open attitude about what the mind might be. So, for example, one particular view is that there is a body, of course, and there is a mind. And they're not really that different. They're um, different expressions of the same thing. So, you have a dense or gross expression, and that's the body and you have a subtle expression, and that's the mind. Some of you have studied yoga, and one of the principles in yoga is the different sheets or different bodies. You know, So you have your dense body, the physical body, then you have your energy body, and then there are all these different kinds of mind bodies on the level of intention, level of thought, and then a more essential aspect of the mind. I forget what it's called right now. So... That's, that's one idea. Now, you could have that as your belief system. But what we're really doing is just loosening up any fixed notions we have. Another view of the mind that we can play with is that the body, the sort of physicality, is a vehicle, or almost like a receiver, that somehow can the mind can express itself through the physicality, through biology you know and in that sense the particular expression of the mind is limited by this particular physicality you know like if you got brain damage you get in a car accident and your brain is damaged well how the mind will manifest will be slightly different and through that biology than maybe through some other receiver or system okay so that's just another view another view Third view, besides the basic scientific materialist view, that the consciousness arises out of the work of the brain and neurons, right? That's the basic materialist view. So a fourth view, then, uh, would be that the physicality and all that we know about this, you know, this sort of material world is simply part of a dream in the mind. And you can imagine like having a particularly vivid dream tonight where you're a person um, very interested in the body and for Christmas you get an electron microscope and other scientific instruments and you have all the discoveries that scientists have had about neurons and protons and cells and cell walls and genetic code and the proteins, right? You could have that as a dream. And it would seem very real and make sense, like dreams make sense. So that whole material view and all the supporting evidence and the sort of uh, the beauty of the logic could just be arising as a dream. Mind-created dream. Right? Just like our dreams make a lot of sense when we're in them. Right? (laughs) And if you really look at these four views, and there's probably many others, what we really like to bring, uh, have come from this is just a more sense of humility. Like we don't really know what the mind is. And that's a, that's a good place to start because we get interested in it. And we don't need to read about the mind. We have it right here. You know, whatever it is... It's right here. And what actually what we're really interested in isn't what it is actually, you know, or what it is objectively. What matters to us is what is it subjectively, right? That's actually something that's important. What is this mind, this experience, subjectively? Because we're having a subjective experience. So this is what we want to know. I really think this is one of the most amazing things: is that more than anything, our life has been characterized by mind. But rarely have we used the mind to better understand it. It's too busy doing other things, you know, deciding what to wear today, or deciding how to get revenge, or, you know, whatever. We, we, whatever avenue we've been giving our mind to do it. I mean, just think about how much time we've spent in life just complaining to ourselves, as if that's functional, as opposed to really being interested in the nature of the mind itself. the things and I don't think we have to look that hard Um, you know when we we just relax like in Qigong practice sometimes um, one of the exercises our teacher Franz Mokel gave us was uh, on the one hand as you're standing there with the knees bent and you drop your tailbone and there's a real earthy quality to the basic stance in Qigong and one Part of the exercise was to really tune into the legs, into the strength in the legs and the earth-like quality of the legs, feeling embodied, feeling grounded, rooted in the earth, and then to open to the mind. And one image I like, Franz didn't use this, but I like to use it, it's like seeing, having a sense, an image in the mind that the mind or the mind is like uh, being held in the bowl. So there's like this beautiful open bowl, and then the mind is just resting there, like the sky is being held by this empty bowl. And two, integrate both of those experiences, being rooted, being grounded in the body, the earth-like aspects or qualities of the body, feeling at home and accepting Of the limitations of that grounded, bound, earth like experience of the body, but also at the same time experiencing the limitless, the boundaryless nature of the mind. Like, right now, are there any boundaries to your mind? Where exactly can't your mind go? Do you know what I mean? I mean, where are the boundaries of the mind what is the age of your mind does it have an age I mean how can we characterize I mean we can characterize thoughts and emotions so I'm mean, there are colorings of the mind that have earth-like qualities like we're in a bad mood you know or we're in a happy mood but more the mind itself awareness itself doesn't really have an age right I mean your body, my body's 52, but in no way does my mind feel 52 or 40 or 80. So we want to recognize this mystery we've been living with, of course, forever, but haven't been that interested in. Sometimes we think, you know, when we hear the teachings of the Buddha, and we hear teachings like the ones tonight, we can think that, well, the more limited relative nature, you know, I'm Mark, who's trying to be a good person, and get my act together in life. and We can sort of want to boohoo that and, and be more interested in emptiness in this boundless, space-like nature of the mind. But actually, the idea of opening up perspective, opening up the mind, is just to correct an imbalance. So ultimately, it's not about being like space. It's, it's about being a good parent or being a good lover or being a good citizen or being a good community member. But what keeps us from doing these very ordinary things, like taking care of our body as best we can, or handling a particular problem in our life as best we can, is we lack the appropriate perspective or understanding. Because we have just this limited view of this experience, and we are missing the limitless, boundless view, we haven't integrated that into this ordinary moment of existence we bring a lot of tightness to little things like traffic or getting a cold or even big things like losing somebody you care about or losing a job The the charge the fear and the greed that comes up for us in daily life situations arises because our perspective is limited So the reason to open up to the nature of the mind isn't to get out of this messy world. It's a way to learn how to be in the messy world. Unless we um, correct the imbalance or the the limitations of our view, then our way of being in the world is always going to be limited by our greed and our aversion and our fear. So we, we cultivate this interest in the nature of mind in the empty, luminous, shining, essentially free nature of the mind. We learn how to integrate that with being a parent or being a lover or being a citizen, having a body, having a life, living on a planet that's under a lot of stress, living. In a world where there's a lot of greed and anger and denial and delusion. Because that's the real question. Like how to live in this world in a boundless, free, loving, wise way. So we'll we'll come back to this. Now next week I'll be out of town on the 2nd of January. And uh, Kyoko Karayama will be speaking on Sunday night, next Sunday night. But I'll be back then the following Sunday, the 9th, and I'll continue uh, sharing some reflections on this third chapter in Jack Kornfield's book. But we've got about 15 minutes now. It would be nice to hear from people, your own experiences about the nature of the mind, questions you have from the talk, any thoughts. And please share your name, too, if you speak up. So what comes to mind? Marissa, right? Marissa,
1: yeah. Um, I was just thinking about my my babies my and how they, what you're describing, seems to be a child, something that a child is, and that doesn't have any kind of sense of what is, you know, consciousness or what is love and how to limit it or anything. And, and I know that's kind of a cliche that people always say, oh, we all get harmed yeah. by life and we all change and stuff like that. But I'm just wondering. Because I, these things that you're talking about in terms of the mind and I don't know, I mean, I think about that a lot, especially now having these kids. Like, what is animating these people? You yeah. know, <laughs> you know, it's biology, but it's more than that. It's be, you okay. know, in some ways. And I don't even know if we're talking about more than that. In what sense? But it's, it is kind of amazing. It's super amazing. Um, yeah. anyway, this is not really a question, it's just stuff. Thought that came to my mind when you we were talking—that I don't know what what is it that why we change so much and get so limited. I mean, is it just the, the little social
0: thing? And well, I think a lot of it is environmental. You know, where we are basically training children to get attached and to be identified and to have opinions about everything. But children, you'll see—I'm sure you agree too. I said that? That although at, in moments the child's mind is space-like, but then in the next moment their mind is capable of being very fixated, and and in anger or in greed. So and that's true with all animals, right? Like ourselves included, of course. Like you can watch a a cat, you know, and um, they can be, one of the interesting things about watching a cat, for example, <clears throat> they can be totally fixated on something. And then if you're watch, if you're watching carefully, <coughs> you can see the mind relax as the mind lets go of that particular fixation and before it picks up the next one. And it And it just goes to neutral for some moments and then until something catches its attention. And, of course, animals, this is a... Basic animal behavior really reinforces this because it's a survival mechanism. If an animal was always fixated, like human beings often are, we get stressed. But we need to be able to focus and and sort of bring our information to bear in a moment. But then we want to let it go. So it's not about not having opinions. You know, a politician shows up on the internet or on our TV set and opinion arises but we can let that opinion arise and then cease right so it's not that we don't have an opinion but we don't need to dwell or proliferate around the opinions that we have it can be just a thought just an opinion just a judgment I'm for I'm against I have no opinion but uh, because of the process of identification we don't want to let it go and it's interesting, you know, there's, there's a lot of study, of course, around children. And when they're really young, they can be totally fixated on a particular toy, you know, mm, totally. You take it away and you put it on top of the fridge, and in a few seconds, it's out of mind, right? But after a few more months, they can generate a concept of that toy, and they'll remember it. And it doesn't matter where you hide it. They'll be able to hold on to it for a long time. You know, their des- and then their desire for it too. Just like us as adults, you know. Think about how long we've held some resentments <laughs> and desires. You know, a long time. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. You had twins, is that right? Yeah. How old are they now? Uh-huh. So yeah, you're right there. Other thoughts? Yeah,
2: Julian. I think something that's helped me to play with that edge is, you know, I do this practically, in a pragmatic way, is or when I'm bored, I look at the space between me and other objects. For example, between me and you now, or if I'm bored in a meeting between me and someone across the table, or me and the tree. But I can begin to see it where it's not space between us, it becomes gelatinous. And then where does my my face is connected to this, which is connected to you, which is connected to the ground, which is connected to all things. You know, the ground's connected to all ground and the oceans and, and everywhere. But, you know, so we're, I, I don't know, it's almost like water or gelatinous, we're moving in this, and it's connected to all things. But what it does is it can trick the mind out of the, the stuckness You know, like you mentioned this morning, you know, looking at the ocean Mm -hmm. or the desert. You know, I've always thought if everyone saw the ocean, everyone should be required to see the ocean, desert, and stars once a year, and the world would be, you know, a lot (laughs) more peaceful. But what it does, you know, it snaps the mind out of that self, and it it just stirs things up a bit.
0: Yeah, I have a a different theory related to that. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said, which is if you give big views like the side of a mountain or ocean or desert, to people, before without sort of easing them into it, actually they can become their minds can become tighter and tighter. And I noticed I was up, but this is way back in the like '82, I think. I was up in Alaska uh, backpacking and doing mountain climbing and stuff for a couple months, and uh, and I was just assuming, you know, everybody in Alaska will you know, have these big spacious minds. <laughs> But I, I started to learn something that people who live out where there's a lot of space often cultivate a very tight mind, almost like a defense against all that space. Not knowing what, because the space, that space of wilderness, let's call it, is a challenge for a mind that wants ground. Because it is so, you could use the word gelatinous, but it, it's so groundless. And, uh, the more when you're in wilderness, especially when you're alone in wilderness, it's not easy to uh, continue to recreate the edifice of civilization, you know, and me and you and this and that and all the things we think are important. It just it takes a lot of work. I, uh, one of the things I noticed that summer, or maybe I think this is another time when I spent a lot of time backpacking another summer. I noticed how hard my mind here I was in a very open space in the high Sierras in California. And I just noticed my mind working so hard to think. And it suddenly it was a real insight. it's it occurred to me, like why? Why here I am in this incredible place, really stunningly beautiful, and my mind is thinking thoughts that are very tight. And contain, you know, creating a real contained universe. And I realized that my mind didn't like all this space. It didn't like this unbounded place. You know, what do we want to do? We want to, like, get in the tent or get around a fire or get in some meaty conversation, you know. That summer, the books I brought along with Dostoevsky, (laughs) several of his books, you know, and talk about. You know, (laughs) contracted states, just the human suffering, and so it's just interesting that, uh, like Julian says, I agree. I think if, in the right way, if we, if we cultivated experiences where human beings were in nature, on the shore, looking over a desert, off the side of a mountain, but just where there was uh, a lot of The absence of fixed minds, you know, that's really what those places are. It's like relative to the rigid, fixed ideas, the space of the shoreline has more power on the mind. affects the mind in a way that can relax it. Thanks, Julianne, for sharing that. Other thoughts people have? Experiences you'd like to share or questions? Yeah, say your name. It's not useful to. <laughs> well, I think, uh, like anything, coming to a talk, talking to your friends about practice, reading good books about practice, or, you know, um, they can be useful if they lead to a direct reflection. But if it's just leading to more discussions and more thinking, then. The usefulness is limited. So some ideas, some conversations really lead to uh, an actual using the mind to know the mind. So in the way the Buddha taught, the direct insight was held up as the essence of the practice. It's a path of insight. Mind, This mind is having an insight. This mind is seeing something About the nature of the mind that it hadn't seen before, hasn't seen before. And uh, that can only happen, that direct insight doesn't happen when we're reading unless you're also reflecting. So, the way to read a good Dharma book, a book about the mind, you know, like a Buddhist book about the mind, or, you know, some books about the mind aren't Buddhist, but still are talking directly about the nature of the mind, pointing toward the nature of the mind. The best way to read a book like that. Is to stop periodically, maybe even every sentence or every paragraph or every page, depending on exactly what you're reading at that time. Put it down for a few seconds or a couple minutes and just allow the mind to directly reflect on what we've read. Because if it's not about here and now, then it's just distraction. You know, and I read books for distraction and I see movies for distraction but I try to be honest with myself what I'm doing. I'm just taking a vacation from reality right now, and I'm absorbing into a story. And maybe I'll learn a little bit about my life in this. You know, I try to choose distractions that uh, that, uh, help reinforce good understandings. But in terms of actual spiritual practice, then the books or the conversations or listening to talks, they're meant to be reflective. So you'll notice sometimes, even in dharma talks, that people will be sitting in meditation while the person's giving a dharma talk. Because they're, I think, you know, either they're asleep or <laughs> they're actually practicing. So they're hearing the words, but they're, they're directly reflecting on the words. And the mind isn't so concerned about missing some of the information. So you might hear something while you're listening to a talk or reading a book. And then it's okay to stop listening to the talk and just directly reflect on what you've just heard, putting it into action, so to speak, with the reflection. Yeah, thanks for asking. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts? We have about five minutes. Yeah, Liz.
3: Um, Just that um, when you were talking about learning about the mind and reflecting on it. Um, when I turned 50 and 51 now, uh, you know, my memory was changing. <laughs> 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 um, I started getting really, you know, oh my god, you know, I it's you know, so, like, uh, am I losing my mind? You know, how bad is this going to get? And I started really getting worried, so anyway, I, I bought this DVD about memory. And uh, it was a person talking with an audience and so forth, and they were kind of testing what people could remember. Um, and then they had practices of helping you remember and so forth. But what I, you know, it was the best $10 I ever spent because what I realized after watching it was that I'm no different than anybody else. And, you know, and then there's, you know, there's Practices you can do to increase your memory, et cetera, um, those kinds of things. So, yeah, it really allayed my fears. And uh, it, was, it was really, as I say, the best $10 I ever spent. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, it just put me at ease that, you know, I need to work on, you know, there's things you can do, but it's not like I'm losing my the, the capacity to have memory.
0: <laughs> well, but, but, you know, maybe maybe you are, and maybe that's actually useful. Like, I, my mom now is an end-stage Alzheimer's, so she's very unresponsive almost all the time. And uh, so I've had these concerns. I'm also, because I'm in my 50s, I'm also not able to remember things like I used to. And it's really apparent to me. But what's really helped me... Is instead of what we normally do and I do this all the time like even with my dad and other old people I know like have they lost their mind or not making it a black or white thing but what's been helpful for me is that we're all in the process of losing that mind so that mind that mind that operates on demand and does what we want it to do we are losing that and it's just a question of how fast and whether we're, it's just a, a temporary cycle and competence will come back, or this is a permanent loss, you know, and it's just part of the, the general movement towards the extinction of this functionality of the mind. But it's, it's been helpful to really get that and to, and to practice making peace with the mind falling apart. Um, because it's scary for us. Now, the interesting thing, being hanging out with my mom, and which I do almost every week, is, uh, you know, just um, we're so identified with the activity of the mind and that, that sort of ordinary functionality like being able to have a conversation or being able to use language. Or being able to have opinions about things, like I like this food, I don't like this food. You know, I notice a lot of times one of the things I do a lot when I'm with my mom is I feed her. She can't eat anymore by herself. And you know, it's always, you know, making conversation. She doesn't respond, but you know, you know, you must like this, or you know, we talk to her. But you know, her mind isn't creating a lot of opinions about things probably. And just to open up to Because we don't want to paint a pretty... It's like we do this with animals, how we personify animals. You know, We turn them into beings like us. And I think this part of the mind that we've been talking about, it's a different universe, which is why we're frightened by it and why we're frightened by losing our more functional, language-based mind. Because that's what we're identified with. That's what we take to be self. And to become boundless and immeasurable means losing that. You know, when we're meditating, one of the great things about deeper states of meditation, I'm not talking about deep states of concentration, but just working with this reflection on emptiness, the boundless, empty nature of the mind, is we really see that it all comes down to letting go of the world it's our fixation on the world on our ideas of who we are what's important what's not important and it's just we see it's a very becomes a very vivid choice so whether it's around the pain in the knees and then the whole story of who we are is the pain in the knees so when we open that to that experience with wisdom we'll get to the point of th- there's an edge where to open more fully To the pain in the knees means we have to let go of the ideas of the person being the person who has pain in his knees you can't actually open to the present moment without going beyond that fixed limited view I'm a guy who has pain in my knees I'm a guy who's a good meditator I'm a guy who's a bad meditator so whatever the moment is it's always about letting go of the world in order to be free of it. So liberation really is the liberation from being dependent on the world. It's not it's not like we're not in the world anymore, but the mind, momentarily at least, isn't bounded, limited by any story we have about ourselves or about the world. So it's useful to use these provocative images like losing your mind. Losing memory, for example, that you brought up, Liz, as, a, as a, like a powerful teacher, a teacher we really want to respect. And you talked about, I thought, uh, right, in a, in a really beautiful way, how what was really valuable in the DVD was how you realize this is happening to everybody. This isn't like a specific problem. This is universal. So if I'm going to be happy and at ease in this life, I have to be willing to include the loss of memory because that's not one of those things we get to keep. You know, even if you buy into the idea that there are past lives, what does it matter if you don't remember? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, what's the actual value that the mind stream continues? So we really have to work with this total letting go. And practice, and that's exactly what meditation practice is about.
3: But also, you know, to to hold on to your mental capacity as long
0: as you can. Well, it helps because it helps us, like, remember to sit, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, and eat, and uh, take care of our the people we need to take care of in our lives that we're responsible for. Yeah, absolutely. But we have to leave it here. So we'll pick it up again on the ninth. Enjoy Kyoko Katayama next Sunday. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two together. And we can be deeply grateful that our most important teacher, the mind, is already here. We've got our classroom always here. May we all be great students of the mind and the heart, share our insights with each other. So thanks, everyone, for coming. And a couple of announcements. Trish, do you have a few announcements for the group?